Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, and welcome to another episode of the chillest podcast in the Kansas State House. Chilling in the State House. I'm Andrew Ball, one half of the Topeka Capital Journal's state government team. I'm joined as always by Jason Tidd, my uh, my better half. Jason, how are you, sir? I, I I'm doing well. It's well, ask me again in about uh, 48 hours when this <laughs> special session is hopefully in the books. Yes, we are. We're making history this week in the Kansas legislature back for uh, a special session. They happen periodically, but it is the first time ever the legislature themselves has called the special session on COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And, and since we're making history, we brought in the press corps' own tenured historian, John Hanna with the Associated Press. Nice. Yes. John, welcome back to the show. It's Thank you. you. Glad to be here. As you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Yes, this is, this is, uh, I feel like big events require a roundtable discussion of, of things taking place and the special session certainly qualifies. And, and I have to say, Jason and, and Andrew, that, uh, some of us who had seen this provision in the constitution, we always kind of wondered how it would work, uh, what it would look like, and you know how would a petition be generated and signed, and how would they count, and all those little weird things that reporters worry about. Well, John, as a as a Lutheran, I know you'll appreciate this, but I, I believe the first special session was in the 19th century. It was about a, a grasshopper plague. The most recent special session was about a pandemic. And, you know, I think in the books of, book of Exodus, there's, there's language about, you know, special sessions on, on plagues and, and, yes. and pandemics uh, and were, vaccine mandates. Uh, I guess we can, uh, we can look forward to the reign of frogs then at some <laughs> point. Um, as long as the Kansas River doesn't turn to blood, I'll, I, I think, I hope we'll be okay. Yes. Well, I think maybe a good place to start is how we got here, guys. I, I You know, it's been an interesting couple of months on this front. And it really, I mean, it all started with when Joe Biden, President Joe Biden's administration, rolled out a series of vaccine mandates, uh, the most significant of which applies to workers at large employers, although that's not really a mandate because you can test and comply. But there are other mandates for federal workers, healthcare workers, uh, workers in nursing homes, and things uh, that government kind of, federal uh, workers for federal government contractors yep. as well. So things kind of started then. There was it seemed like a grassroots swell of support with uh, some conservative legislators echoing that for bringing lawmakers back to Topeka. 
But that didn't really seem to get a whole lot of interest from legislative leaders, right? No, it was, what, about maybe a dozen in Republicans in the Kansas House and Senate who were really spearheading the call to have a special session early early after Joe Biden announced those mandates in September. Well, and, and part of the issue was that re, uh, at least Republican legislative leaders really were at that point at a loss for what the state could do to push back against the, the federal government mandates. There was some discussion at a meeting of legislative leaders where they said, you know, the we don't want the legislature to gallop off and do something and put businesses in the middle and have those businesses subject to a lot of federal government fines. And, you know, there was a, there was a law, uh, during past during the Brownback administration that declared that the federal government had no right to regulate firearms, ammunition, and accessories, manufactured, sold, and kept only in the state of Kansas. A couple of folks in Wichita relied on that law when they were prosecuted for uh, gun law violations, federal gun law violations. And the judge, the federal judge in that case, basically uh, said, no, that state law doesn't protect you. Which just makes sense if you, you know, passed your, your high school civics class. You know, the, the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution is, is fairly clear. Well, and, and what, what we're getting into here is a discussion amongst lawyers about things like, does the law you pass conflict with the federal law? How much does, I, I think the doctrine is known as preemption for, for uh, legal people who want to find the legal term. And what it means is how much can the federal government preempt the law in this field? And that question gets answered in cases like this. And then the question becomes, well, okay, if the federal government can preempt law, it can preempt the law in this area. It can step in and dictate, uh, you know, for example, immigration law is an example of that. Um, then the issue becomes, does the state law or the local ordinance or whatever conflict with the federal law? And so, for example, with immigration, you had, uh, he was Kansas Secretary of State at the time, and it, before he became Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, uh, going around the country helping cities, counties, and states write these restrictive immigration policies. Almost all of which got struck down later well, in court. I, I, and and the argument was they were supplemental to what the federal government was doing. In some ways, they helped the federal government enforce immigration laws. And, and as you point out, the, the record thereon was pretty mixed in terms of court success. And so what that would be an issue here if... Uh, and we probably need to be talking about what they're going to be considering. Well, I, first, or at least what the leadership says they're going to be considering. So, so, as you had noted, the leadership didn't really know what they wanted to do right. on vaccine mandates. So, they established this committee to determine what to do. It, it was somewhat of a cheaper option than just going straight into a special session that costs $65,000 a day with no plan. Right. And now, a couple months later, they have a plan. They have theoretically. Yes. They have two bills 
the first of which would essentially guarantee medical and religious exemptions. And the religious exemption would basically be... All you have to do is say you have a religious exemption. You would would file a written statement saying getting the vaccine violates my sincerely held religious beliefs. I'm not sure you'd even have to say sincerely held. And then the employer would have to grant it. And and moreover, and I think this is important, any violations of uh, perceived violations of those rights, uh, a person could sue, have a cause of right. action against If you business. didn't get one, you could sue. And if you won, you'd get your attorney's fees paid. And this is where federal law and state law could potentially come in conflict. Well, and, and there's, we to be fair, there's a debate about that. Uh, the supporters of that bill say, oh, no, there's not a conflict. All we're doing is putting some details out there about how the exemptions will work. Uh, the OSHA rule, Occupational Safety and Health Administration rule on on the mandate for workers with 100, uh, in companies with 100 or more employees, mentions that employers have to make a reasonable accommodation for sincerely held religious beliefs. And, you know, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, has issued guidance that says, you have to account for the fact that beliefs can change. Uh, recently, right before the statement, um, you you know you have to consider that religious beliefs may not mandate you know regular church attendance, and you also have to be you have to have some evidence that your employee is. Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, faking it, you have to some tangible evidence and your investigation has to be minimal. This is different because it basically says to the business, you don't investigate. You just, they, they give you a statement and that's it. And the argument we hear from supporters about that is who is a private employer and who is... Uh, the government to investigate your religious beliefs, you know, to say, hey, John, well, how often do you go to church? Can we get a letter from your pastor? What does the head of your church say about vaccinations? They want to avoid all that kind of investigation of somebody's religious views because they believe that leads to discrimination. Of course, critics will tell you uh, that means that things that are political beliefs will suddenly become religious beliefs. Um, I, I had uh, Modi, Modi Reber with Kansas Interfaith Action said, well, the religion will just be opposition to the public health or Trumpism, um, which, of course, those are political things, not religious. But there, but there are no real safeguards in the bill to prevent someone from, you know, much like the conscientious objector uh, provision uh, of avoiding the draft in the Vietnam War era could could potentially have been abused. This could also potentially be abused. And, and and there have been public comments in the written testimony saying this bill does not go far enough because if you don't have a conscientious objector provision, people like me are going to use the religious exemption when we should more appropriately be using a conscientious objection. Well, and in talking to businesses, their question is, 
I mean, one thing they have said to me, business owners have said to me is we don't, we don't want to be doing this. We don't want to be making, we don't want to be inquiring. We don't, I mean, this is not what we want to do, but I mean, realistically, how do you pin down that somebody's religious belief is sincere? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, is it, is it a, I know it when I see it test it's that's what that's why i think the republican legislators who are pushing this are arguing for you state it you get it and the benefit of that also they argue is that if you do that then workers are just going to apply for those get them and there won't be much of a need for the second bill they'd consider look well, real quick, before we get to the second bill, and I think this point is important for the second bill, the business community largely opposes this bill on the logic that, first off, it creates a cause of action against businesses, which always sets off alarm yeah. bells. Cre- creating a liability where a business could potentially have to l- lose money is never something that the chamber is going to support. And also there is, you know, like we said, there's uncertainty. I don't think it's it's settled. You could say it's settled firmly one way or the other, but businesses don't like uncertainty. They don't like being caught in the middle, and they certainly don't like being caught in the middle of the second bill. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, for the first one, they're, they're kind of caught between state and federal law. And, and no matter what, no matter what decision you make, it's wrong. Right. So you'll break a law. Or, yeah, or you, potentially you directive. will break the law, and and I mean, uh, I talked to a, a, the CEO of a business who said he'd gotten several different opinions on how it would work. I mean, one guy told me uh, that he'd been asking attorneys and hadn't got really a straight answer. I mean, it just, I mean, HR stuff can be very complicated. Now for the second bill, it's centered around unemployment insurance and benefits and essentially correct me if i'm wrong if you are a worker and are denied a job or lose your job because of a religious belief against vaccination you get unemployment benefits right and that is not how the law currently is i know andrew you wrote about that the expert said if you are unvaccinated and don't comply with the mandate you're you're out of luck you in effect you're quitting voluntarily right which then prevents you from getting unemployment the other thing that's interesting about this bill is there is kansas has a policy that you have to be actively looking for work and you have to take suitable an offer of if you get an offer of suitable employment you have to take it to keep you know to or otherwise if you turn somebody down and the job is suitable for you you lose you you stop getting unemployment and under this a requirement from the business to get vaccinated means that if you're that if you oppose getting vaccinated it's not suitable work for you and that is actually this is actually arguably um an expansion of worker rights um and and that's what you know, uh, there are Democrats out there saying, well, if we're going to expand workers' rights, let's talk about some other things. <laughs> Which, hmm. and I mean, like, that kind of gets to the irony of this debate, because for the last year, Republicans have been criticizing, not without merit, 
Governor Kelly's administration for their handling of first the Kansas Department of Labor, but also by extension, the Unemployment Trust Fund, the state fund that pays out UI claims and is funded by businesses via their payroll taxes, which took a big hit when we paid out uh, a lot of fraudulent unemployment claims. Now, the business community is basically saying, look, you're turning around and passing a bill that will have a, a... an unknown effect. We don't. We don't know the effect. A lot right. of people There's are speculating. There's no good estimate. But have an unknown effect on on that fund, and thus you know our taxes could go up, and that and that's again a surefire way to get the business community to come out against something. Is and their taxes of, going up? Of course, Republicans are some of the first to point to the staffing crisis in Kansas and staffing shortages in several areas of the state and within state agencies. And having this kind of an unemployment law could exacerbate that situation. Well, and the the argument in this during the summer about uh, when states had the authority to end additional unemployment benefits early, and there was pressure from Republicans on uh, Governor Kelly, who's a Democrat, of course, to do that. Their argument was that the state shouldn't be providing these extra benefits so that people could sit at home and not work while jobs were going unfilled. And of course, Kelly's argument was the jobs were going unfilled because people were worried about COVID, because there were issues with childcare, that that sort of thing. So there's there's that argument. And so, yes, there is there is some irony there that the lawmakers who were pressing that point would create a situation where folks could sit at home and not work and and that that just flips the debate now of course democrats said maybe people are staying at home and not working cuz they're looking for better opportunities there's a whole there's a whole literature in during the pandemic this period in the pandemic about why jobs remain open why workers aren't jumping and and you know one theory is that workers during the pandemic had time to focus on what was important and people with jobs they didn't like wondered why they were staying particularly low wage jobs particularly low wage low wage jobs and and you know folks wanted to get off the treadmill so all of that plays into this but iowa has passed this law passed it in late october and so that may have gotten folks thinking about this as an option because of course this is another thing that would discourage you if you're an employer from from uh, rejecting religious or medical exemptions and one other thing on this is uh, the way it's written, it would be retroactive to the day Biden announced the mandates. So if you worked for a hospital and voluntarily left because of the vaccine mandate, any time in the past three months... Even if the vaccine mandate was totally unrelated to what was going on at the federal level. Uh, you could get unemployment benefits for that time period. Yeah. And, and that question is out there, especially out there about hospitals and healthcare facilities because some of them and the biggest uh, hospital systems in Kansas are requiring vaccinations well I think given all the all the 
questions that we've just talked about on these bills, do Republicans have the votes to pass either of these? Because it's kind of unclear. I mean, the way some have characterized it is these are the two lowest rungs on the ladder of anti-mandate legislation that could go through with the top wrong being a complete and total ban on vaccine mandates. And with them being the two lowest wrongs, it's unclear if it has moderate support or even if the governor would be willing to sign a bill. Well, that that is an interesting question. Uh, both actually are interesting questions. And, and so far I'm hearing uh, more certitude that the bill on religious exemptions would pass right. and less on unemployment. Because, I mean, I, talking with the folks at the Kansas Chamber yesterday who are very much against the unemployment bill, they're not sure that they can, even if changes are made, that they can get to a point where they're even neutral on the bill. And that carries a lot of weight with legislators because the Kansas Chamber is one of the most powerful groups in this building. Yeah, particularly with Republicans. Um, the other, I mean, the other interesting thing that's, about this is the degree to which this further illustrates in the era of Trump how the Republican Party has shifted. Uh, been listening to uh, an audiobook and uh, talking about uh, column uh, articles Norman Mailer wrote in 1968 about the conventions and he talked about the Republican convention in Miami and the people who went, uh, the small business owner, the, uh, the high school principal, the, you know, these were, these were main street, small town, you know, strivers basically. And then of course the democratic convention that year was, epically bad um and that's a whole other whole other subject um but the point is the republican party always was seen as the party of the individualistic striver the small business chamber of commerce type commerce type and the democratic party was always seen as the party of the working class particularly working class whites and over over the past five decades, the Republican Party has moved toward speaking for a populist language for the working class, particularly in rural areas. And um, the Democrats have become much more a party of the educated elites. Well, I think we saw this play out. And it, it also, I mean, I mean just... I think the sentiments we heard during the special committee hearings were, we talked about this a little bit, but unlike anything that has had this kind of legitimacy in the building in the past, I mean, anti-vaccine, anti-science. Anti-Semitism. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was a, a, I don't even, I hesitate to even call it conservative because I don't think it is even keyed into traditional right, left party politics but a certain grassroots anti-establishment anti i I mean just a certain stream of it is thought that we have not heard have this kind of power in this this actually though has been something that's been in american politics for a long time which is this uh, resistance to for lack of a better word elites 
what we're seeing is people who don't trust uh, people in the bureaucracy. They don't trust scientists. They don't trust the medical establishment. And to be fair to them, early in the pandemic, all of those groups made some mistakes. I mean, the first guidance people got on, for example, social distancing was muddled and confusing. But so they are, they're, they're what we would call, they, they style themselves as autodidacts, meaning they'll go out and do their own research and become, you know, jacks of all trade and figure this out on their own. And then there's, you know, there's this deep well of resentment that somebody, some elite somewhere is going to tell them what they have to do. And if they feel like it's being imposed on them without them having a seat at the table, that makes them angrier. And that I get is a lot of the that's a lot of the feeling of the anger. The county commission, for example, just decides to impose a mask mandate before I can go talk to my county commissioner and try to persuade him not to. Uh, the public health officer does something and I'm supposed to live with it. And I never got a chance to go to a meeting to talk about it beforehand. Um, you know, because supporters of these actions would say, because we're in a pandemic. Well, and I, not to get too nakedly political, but Jason, you mentioned what we, what the governor is going to do. I think it's a fair question. What does this sentiment mean for the political climate in Kansas? You know, looking forward to the next year, because the governor has come out in opposition to the federal mandates, but in a way that might leave her open to some difficulties going right. forward. I mean, uh, for me, as somebody who's been in Topeka for only a few months, it is a little surprising that a governor who is a former legislator doesn't take a little bit more hands-on approach to policy. And it kind of seems that... W Whatever happens this week with the special session, it's going to be Republicans own it and will own the messaging on it. And the governor will be reacting to whatever happens. Well, and, and you know, always, I mean, that's an interesting point because there have been governors who've come from the legislature and spent the first couple of years of their tenure. Mike Hayden is the one who's coming to mind, being very involved with what the legislature did and that not working well for them and them having to learn to back off. Um, but yeah, this is an interesting question because on the one hand, she's stated her opposition. On the other hand, Republican legislators are pretty much treating that as a bluff. And the special session allows them to say, okay, you say you're opposed to these mandates. Let's talk about what we can do. And Well, and she's kind of boxed herself into a no-win position because if she signs these bills, Democrats, particularly I think Democrats in suburban areas, highly vaccinated areas, are going to say, hey, that's kind of a slap in the face right. to what we believe. And if she vetoes them, Republicans will point out what you just said, a, a kind of hypocrisy that, uh, you know, she she wants to she wants the benefits of at least on the surface opposing the federal mandates without really doing anything to support that. As former Topeka mayor uh, Joan Wagnon, also a former Kansas Democratic Party chair, told me, 
everybody is on a tightrope on this one, but hers is higher and more difficult. She's got this potentially narrowing path to reelection, and this, no matter what she's done, what she does, she's going to make some people mad. And the question is, are the the situation right now? What talking to a political consultant in New Jersey? What he said was the governor of New Jersey who won like by three percentage points in a state that Biden carried by, I think, 16. Very unexpected. He said that the governor pulled in 133,000 more votes than he did in, in 2017. So he actually increased his turnout. But but overall turnout jumped like 21%. So all these Republican areas were seeing what he called a red surge. So if you're looking at Kansas, and he argued that the lessons from New Jersey apply everywhere, that every Democrats everywhere should be looking at that, um, you know, because there was this question in Republican circles, can the Republican Party generate Trump-style turnout when Trump is not on the ballot? And the answer appears to be yes, it is possible. And so if Republicans have a really, really high turnout and the energy right now is on the right, that that has got to be a, a, a very gloomy prospect for Democrats in Kansas. And, you know, then the question is, how enthusiastic is, is Kelly's Democratic base? Because she's going to need every last one of them, plus independent and moderate GOP voters. Moderate and independent GOP voters, who we might add, could be turned off, especially if the legislature goes for eventually for a nuclear option kind of banning all vaccine mandate yeah. type of solution. So it's safe to say that, you know, the political risks are not all being borne. Right. It's not, it's, it's not all, it's not all being borne by the Democrats or, or, or their governor. I mean, for example, you could have this thing devolve into a messy thing that leaks closer and closer to Thanksgiving without much resolution. That would raise questions about how well Republicans govern. You could have, you know, you could have big crowds of protesters wearing yellow stars and carrying anti-vax signs that then alienate some of those suburban voters you want to bring back to the Republican fold. You could do something that could really make the business community mad. And, you know, that's not helpful to a Republican, I would would arguably. Do you have any idea what some of those proposals could be that would bog down the session. I, I know there was one proposal uh, this past week on banning contact tracing, right. not that, just for COVID, but for all infectious diseases. Right. That, an invasion that of would privacy. be one. Certainly any proposal to ban private employers from imposing vaccine mandates would be pretty highly contested. With, that Because then you're getting into telling businesses what to do which is an interesting dynamic in a right to work state yes yes and you know i, I was talking to the ceo of a, uh, an industrial construction company and no it was the lawrence paper company and he said i don't need the state coming in telling me what to do i don't 
want federal, state, and local mandates. I just want to do my business and run it, it, this stuff being between me and my employees. And that echoes the rhetoric from the Kansas Chamber as well. The The Chamber opposes mandates like this at all levels. It doesn't want the state to start mandating stuff, doesn't like the federal mandate. A lot to track next week. And if you want to do that, by golly, have we the place to do it? cjonline.com. Or you can find the Topeka Capital Journal's lovely statehouse content, including sometimes John's statehouse content, on uh, Facebook and Twitter at cjonline. And Jason, where can they find you on Twitter to track your updates? I am at Jason underscore Tid. That's T-I-D-D. John? A-P-J-D Hannah. And if they want to read your work, where can they do that? Well, apnews.com backslash Kansas. You, and, uh, or in most Kansas news outlets. And most Kansas news outlets. You, you all didn't see it because this is you know audio, but John had a very nice hand motion illustrating the backslash. Yeah, I use my hands a lot when I speak. <laughs> Thanks for adding the when I speak part to that. Um you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L, and you can find this podcast, which we probably will have some updates at some point for y'all, uh, wherever fine podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or cjonline.com. Jason, any last words of wisdom for the assembled crowd out there? Don't burn your turkey. Something. Yeah, stay safe over Thanksgiving. Hopefully we uh, get to Thanksgiving. Without with a conclusion to the special session, John, not really not. I mean, uh, these things can be uh, these things can go smoothly or not. And we've now had this will be the third one in the last five years, which is kind of unkansas like. We'll just you know, for the sake of our Thanksgiving plans, we'll hope it goes more smoothly than not. My final words for y'all. Just thankful for every one of you who listens to this fine podcast. We will see you all back next time. Same time, same place. Have a good one, y'all.